Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and this week I'm here with a really good friend of mine. Uh, we have Rebecca Rowland. Rebecca is the New England-based author of two dark fiction collections, a handful of novellas, and too many short stories. She's also the editor of seven horror anthologies, including this year's American Cannibal. Her speculative fiction, critical essays, and book reviews regularly appear in a variety of online and print venues. You can find her on Instagram at Rebecca underscore Roland underscore books or on her website, RolandBooks.com. We primarily are talking about her new upcoming collection, White Trash and Recycled Nightmares, which is coming out on October 10th. But we also spend some time talking about Spooky Empire, a convention in Florida that she is helping organize. I also spent a few minutes at the end of the episode talking to Heather Yo. So Heather is a theater artist and improviser from Albuquerque, and she's one of the two producers of Quarantine Productions. Quarantine specializes in large-scale immersive horror shows and interactive films. It has been an Albuquerque mainstay for the past 10 years. She's also an improviser, part of the show, at the Box Performance Space. You can check out more about Quarantine at www.quarantineabq.com. And of course, Quarantine X is starting really soon, so you're going to want to go there and get your tickets. In the meantime, go ahead and head on over to whatever streaming platform you're using and hit the subscribe button. Go ahead and like the show, give us a five-star review, and here we go with Rebecca Rowland. It's weird that this is the first time you've been on this show. Yeah. Because I feel yeah. like I mean, you've been on the other show twice, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah. And they were great episodes. I had such a good time on Weirdest Thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I keep thinking of like, like when people ask me, like, oh, who are some of the guests you've had? I'm like, oh, you know, I've had Doug Ford and I've had Rebecca Rowland. I'm like, no, actually, I haven't had Rebecca yet. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the Daniel Brom episode was fantastic. fantastic. That was I think Daniel Brom is one of like my favorite discoveries as a writer in recent years. And he was so, and it was such a fun conversation too. Isn't he? He's, I have to tell you, he's, he's someone that no matter what topic you bring up, he knows Mm. so much about it. And it's, it's fascinating. Some of the things um, we're fine. I finally got to meet him in person at AuthorCon last year and he just, his, uh, just breadth of knowledge is just so fan, and he's also just a really nice guy. Yeah, he's nice, nice guy, and a fantastic writer. I mean, extremely gifted. Yeah, so. he's been. He's. I've been trying to do this thing, and we'll talk about it because we're going to talk about your book today. And I'm going to be honest; I haven't quite finished it. And the reason why is I'm trying to adopt this new way of reading, like short story collections. Okay. Where I don't just like binge the whole thing yeah. because I'm discovering that when I do that, I like I don't retain stuff as much. Okay. So I'm like, same with like you. What I've been doing is I've been going between White Trash and Recycled Nightmares and Daniel's stuff and kind of going back and forth, reading like a story a night kind of thing. Yeah. Are you reading his new one? Are you reading Underworld Dreams? Are you? Reading... I've been kind of picking around both of them, but mostly Underworld Dreams right now. So the monkey coat, I. <laughs> still it's still i would say one of my favorite short stories Mm -hmm. just in general not even just from daniel but i just it's so creepy on a on a whole other level yeah yeah i read like reading his stuff and i kind of said this then but i'm getting even more of this since the more of his stuff i read i'm like he's doing what i want to do but i feel like he's doing it better so I'm like trying to like learn from him right now because he's just so like getting into like, you know, he calls it strange, strange stories, almost mm-hmm. more than horror stories. And I'm kind of really trying to lean into that way of thinking about it because yeah, 
Yeah. The other thing that I know he does that I know I'm also trying to work on is he doesn't spoon feed anything mm -hmm. to his reader. He leaves a lot. He really, he respects the reader enough to not spell out everything and leave some endings um, kind of up in the air and ambiguous. And I like that. I mm -hmm. really I like that. I feel like it shows that he he he's not sort of holding the reins really tightly. Like he mm -hmm. wants you to feel this way. He's sort of putting it out there and 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 you're feeling uncomfortable and you're feeling creepy but sort of what you take away from it is is all your own mm. and I, I i like that he does that like he's, yeah. he's so smart he's so yeah smart. And I, i'm trying you know it's, it's what it's always what i always want to do with my stuff and i feel like i never quite trust myself enough and i feel like i either i'll either go so ambiguous that the ending are just kind of like wait what or or I'll end up like my instinct will be to like spoon feed too much. So I'm trying to look at his stuff and like find that. Like he's just like in the Goldilocks zone as far yeah. as that goes. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also I'm stealing that, the Goldilocks zone. I'm trying to <laughs> trademark that fast. I love it. I love yeah. it. But yeah, but uh, we should talk about your book. Yeah. So White Trash and Recycle Nightmares, when does it come out? It comes out October 10th. So 10-10, I'm going to hold up a even though this is an audio mm -hmm. podcast, <laughs> here's the book right here. Um, it comes out the tenth, so this will be up. This podcast yeah. will be out right be right before. It yeah, comes this will out. come out the the Friday before. Yeah, so it's it's up for pre order now. It'll be out in print, digital, and the audio book. Like fingers crossed, because it's not like Audible. So they're so mysterious about about. Mm -hmm. it. They're like the big claw machine. Like maybe you're the one chosen <laughs> today. Maybe you're not. So it hopefully it'll be out by the tenth. If not, it should be soon after. And the the narrator for the audiobook, I I really I I hit the lottery with her. It's a uh, Jen Lee who mm -hmm. did she did Haley Piper's Queen of Teeth. She's fantastic. Oh my, mm -hmm. she is like she, I, I I as soon as she was recording it, I thought, oh my god, I am so so lucky like this year to to get that so i'm yeah. i'm excited to hear it yeah well that's uh she i mean she's one of the best readers out there now particularly doing kind of indie horror stuff like yeah. i would love to get her if i ever get a chance to do an audiobook i would love to be able to reach out to her yeah 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 she's just she's fantastic and i know she's not just doing horror she's doing she does sort of all the genres mm -hmm. um because she'll post on her social media like she's doing a romance and then she's doing this and but because she's a trained she's a trained actress mm -hmm. and she she comes from a family of actors and it, so it's just something that she's been entrenched in her entire life and so she she just it's she just breathes it you know what i mean she's she encompasses everything you want in, yeah. in a narrator it's so funny because like audiobooks are such a like i love audiobooks but man you get the wrong narrator it just yeah and like there's like so, even some like overall good narrators will have these particular ticks like if it's a male uh reader when he's doing a female voice he just goes up and yes and then, yes it's it drives a little me bit crazy breathy. yeah yep mm -hmm. and like yeah. Like one thing I noticed about uh, Jen Lee's stuff, I think I've done a couple books she's read. She doesn't fall into that trap. She, she'll find a different voice for each character, but she doesn't like she doesn't overly gender them or kind of fall into the stereotype. Right. Just like little subtle shifts, and you know you're hearing a different character. Yes. Yeah. And there's actually there's one story in White Trash that has sort of a whole ensemble of characters, and she she had said to me, she's like. 
well this is it like this i think is i the know one. the story yeah and <laughs> so um and there's just so much dialogue because i just that's i guess my jam i love doing dialogue and so mm. poor jen like I, I but i'm so <laughs> excited i'm so excited to see what she does with it you know to be able to distinguish between each one of them so the book is coming out it's who's the publisher dead sky publishing Dead Sky. So they have um, they have Christopher Triana, they have mm-hmm. Haley Piper, they have um, Joe Lansdale. So they they kind of have this like, eclectic catalog. Mm-hmm. Everything from weird western to you know they they, they the Joe Lansdale is actually a, a graphic novel version oh, of one of his Happen Leonard books. And oh, then okay. They have an environmental horror anthology, and then you know they have Triana's splatterpunk book. Mm-hmm. So. They do a lot of a lot of different things, and so I I'm really grateful well, that they took this on. Yeah, it is interesting because I've read uh, Christopher Triana's stuff, and mm-hmm. I've read your stuff, and reading uh, this book, like I would not say that this particularly falls into the splatter. Like you have some yeah. really great quiet horror in here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like I'm just looking at the book cover, like even the book cover itself, and I'll post it on uh, social media. It's like, oh, it's just this nice picture of a of a nice house until you kind of look a little bit more closely. <laughs> You're like, right. wait a minute, what's happening in this house? And it's that's the way like so much of the book read to me is it's like you're yeah. very good at just like. Like one story, I guess we'll just dive into some of the stories. Like yeah. probably the story that kind of hit me just like a punch to the gut more than any other one was uh, New and Perfect. Oh, yes. Um, and it's yeah. because, and I don't want to spoil it, but you pull the rug out at the end in a really interesting way. Um, Thank you. Thank you. That When I was writing that, I, I imagined it as a black and white Twilight Zone mm-hmm. episode as I was writing it. And so I wanted it to have that kind of, you know, that that kind of, you know, where the music swells at the end of, of the twi- of the old fashioned Twilight Zone episodes. That's what I wanted it to be. So thank you. It's, mm-hmm. um yeah, it's very, the ending's very dark. You know, people I know who have read it, they're like, why I walked away feeling really sad. Well, it's very dark and it's, you really, it's like the last maybe two paragraphs where you really figure out what's going on and then it's like oh fuck and then like it's done (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you (laughs) yeah and i don't and like we can get into like a little bit more into some of the other stories but that's actually one i just i just want people to go read it and like the less you know about that one the better i think okay thank you you. (laughs) so like how many stories are in here i forgot i was gonna count them 20 20 20. so it's 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 a it's it's long but i tend to not write very long i think the longest story in there i think is about six thousand words and that's unusual for me my sweet Mm -hmm. spot's about four thousand forty two hundred and there are a couple of sort of flash fictiony like thug i think is only two thousand twenty five hundred words so they're 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 shorter they're shorter pieces yeah well i'll say every story that like i said i'm I'm probably about two-thirds of the way through it i think because like i said i'm just kind of picking around uh going back and forth between you and daniel stuff but each story is just like they're just like perfect little morsels and i and i'm actually having to like what i found is i'm having to kind of discipline myself because i keep like okay go to the next story go to the next story i'm actually like trying not to do that so I'll allow myself no more than like two a night i like that that's that's very flattering <laughs> so thank you thank yeah. you especially knowing that you're going back and forth between me and daniel that makes me i'm extremely honored to, to share <laughs> To share your headspace with Daniel, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Where, where are these stories? So are these mostly unpublished stuff or is this stuff that you've published in, 
Is it a mix? So about 80% are previously published. They appeared either in anthologies, magazines. The oldest one in there, I want to say, is the Wendigo story, which is um, was originally published under a different name. And it was in a a movie monsters anthology Mm. years and years ago. The most recent, I mean, I'd say I think four or five of them are original to the to the collection. So Monsters, Tom Morello's in the back seat, and Fear No Drowning. And Run Around Sue. Those four are original to the collection. Those are original. There's one that I know you and I are in the same collection, uh, with the cave. Yes. The little demon the little demon digest. Little demon di- yes. Yeah. Um, I was in yeah. that as well. That's I think I I had already gotten to know you a little bit because you had published at least one of my stories at that point. Yeah, it's it's all blending together. I feel like it's <laughs> been years. We're getting old, Scott. <laughs> this is like early, early days of the pandemic. <laughs> but I think the cave is actually the first thing of yours I actually read. Oh, okay. Because I yeah. knew you as an editor from having worked with yeah. you, but um, and that's just like such a fun classic sort of subterranean horror kind of like. And you know, it's based on so in Western Massachusetts, actually right outside of Amherst, there is it's a real mountain range where I, I set it, and there really was there really is a book depository there that mm. during the Cold War was being used as this Cold War facility for the government. Right. But now it's being repurposed for, I believe, Amherst College, or it might be UMass Amherst. And I have been hiking on that mountain. And it's it's very steep in some areas. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful view. You know, all of the hikers in the area will kind of, you know, travel and and, and um, attempt that mountain. So I, I just thought it was just such a neat concept that there was this government secret facility going on inside this mountain mm. and wondered like what might still be buried in there. And yeah, so that's how that that came to be. Well, that definitely like that hit a lot of my uh, creative um, sweet spots because being in New Mexico, where we have we also have a lot of weird, creepy underground bunkers and government mm-hmm. facilities, and of course, who right? knows what's yeah. being hidden in the middle of the desert, kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, definitely like it, it felt of a piece with like you know some of the like urban legends that I grew up around out here. Right, right, yeah. yeah. So the two stories that you had that like just the ending just really were like perfect gut punches for me. Like I already said new and perfect. And then the other one's actually the first story in the book, Layover. Ah, yeah. (laughs) That one actually has really stuck with me. So you want to like just kind of set that one up a little bit? So that was one of my favorite stories to write. And it's a very, very creepy origin story. So the reason why this collection's called, you know, White Trash and Recycled Nightmares is because as soon as I turned 40, I just, I, I found that I, and I used to be such a good sleeper. I was that kid, that toddler that never fought her parents going to bed. I loved sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, I slept very easily places. I was never kind of like, oh, you know, the bed needs to be hard or soft or whatever. I could sleep anywhere. And mm-hmm. then as soon as I turned 40, I just, it was the weirdest thing. I just could not sleep. I would be up for hours and hours mm-hmm. and hours. Even to this day, I don't sleep through the entire night, even with sleep medication, yeah. any of those things. So I've never been a good sleeper. So <laughs> so you get it. You get it. It's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. But at the same time, I was also starting to have these very vivid dreams. And some of them would be nightmares. And some would just be just weirdo, like, well, I don't know what's going on in my, sub- you know, my mm. subconscious. But I 
thought, you know, I'm going to start writing these down. So I, as soon as I woke up, I would write down everything I could remember about the dream. And usually it was just pieces. So like for New and Perfect, it was actually the scene where she's walking and everything is covered in ice. Mm-hmm. It was just that scene. And so I just wrote that down and I would put the scenes aside. And then months later, I would pick them up and say, you know, what can I do with this? I'm going to make this into a story. But lay over the first story in, in the collection, I woke up and almost the entire story was the dream and mm. the fact that it was a male, you know, Adam, um, a male protagonist that I was following around. I knew his name was Adam in my dream. I um, just about everything in there was in the dream. And so I, I sat, I remember sitting down and it was a good hour that I just wrote mm. down every single thing, but I did still put it aside. I asked a good friend of mine who at the time his his daughter was, I want to say six or seven. And he used to joke that she was super, you know, kind of creepy and she would grow up to be like a, horror, a horror writer or whatever. Cause she would, you know, draw weird things and mm-hmm. she always liked scary things. And I said, could you have her draw this? And it's kind of the thing that's in the story. Mm-hmm. But even he was like, that is really sick. You're not going to have my daughter draw, draw that. And so I had to sort of peruse. I went through a whole afternoon of just children's drawings on the internet to get a feel for what, mm-hmm. you know, what they're, how they draw and what, how they conceive things. But I, I loved writing that story down because it just felt like some, that some thing or some one had just given me this gift in my self-conscious in my subconscious and and so i'm glad i'm glad you like it because well that one in in the you know back to talking about daniel braun it's it's what i I told him i really appreciated about some of his work is that it's just this accumulation of details like you're never quite sure like where the story is and then it all just locks in right at the end and it's another one i mean the only thing i want to say about that is that you know it's called layover it involves a pilot and that's all we should say about that um but just the way the story all locked in at the end was you know there's there's the twist ending where you kind of like oh that was clever and then there's the ending where it's like it's not clever it's it pushes it to this like new level you know and that's what i felt with i think both layover and new and perfect have that to me where it's like it's a good story that becomes kind of a brilliant story oh thank you thank you and i have to thank (laughs) It was originally published with Zombie Pirate. They're out of Australia and they mm. had a, a full metal horror three cosmic horror. That was the, the theme mm. of their anthology. And that's not something I normally write. And so when this developed, I thought, oh, this is this fits. Finally, I have mm. something that's going to fit this call. And they were so kind. They were so kind to me. They were such a great publisher to work with. So yeah, well, that one, I, that one really stuck with me. I love Tom Morello is in the back seat. <laughs> I want to ask about so and, the, and like these are all hard to talk about because I'm looking at my list of the ones I want to talk about and I'm like they're very easy to spoil like and I don't want to spoil any of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, these are very like I think these are the type of stories that you really want to go in knowing as little as possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can tell you the Tom Morello one was not a nightmare. It was actually inspired by, and this is such a horrible, real story. There was years back, there was a coworker of mine who has had been talking to another coworker and uh, a friend of mine and I over actually overheard the conversation and he had created a fake social media profile on a mm-hmm. dating site 
just to be a jerk and see, because I, I work in a school, it's a, it's one of the largest schools, yeah. high schools in, in Massachusetts. So we have over 160 faculty members. And so we're huge, huge staff. And he, just to be a jerk, went on because he wanted to see who in the faculty was on this dating site and what they were kind of doing. And he was catfishing them. And I thought, mm. what an absolute dirtbag like, yeah. to do something like that. But I think for this story, I was trying to think because I wanted to set it before Me Too. I wanted to set it back before mm. sort of social media. And so I thought mid 90s, what would be the equivalent? And I and I definitely I know that it's I go above and beyond dirtbaggery. These guys are they're predators. They're they're predators. They're horrific monsters on a level that mm. that I I don't feel sad about should anything happen to them. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Oh and that one again, without wanting to say too much, it involves a bunch of fraternity douchebags who, like you yep. said, go way beyond douchebags. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. um it definitely goes in, in a very unexpected but very satisfying direction. <laughs> I was satisfied. I'm writing it for sure. <laughs> for sure. I also, yeah. I loved, and I think this we can talk about without it being a spoiler, but even just, yeah. so the phrase, Tom Morello is in the backseat. This is like code for like, we want to get in the backseat and fool around. Yeah. And like, it's such a unique, specific <laughs> use of Tom Morello. <laughs> well, to be honest, I mean, well, I wanted to be able to, I thought mid nineties, early nineties, what was I listening to? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was listening, you know, to, to Rage Against the Machine to, mm -hmm. you know, early Nine Inch Nails. Like that's what I was listening to. So I, and I just adore Tom Morello, man. I just, I just think he's the coolest thing well, he's, and he's one of the most just innovative guitarists that's ever like there's nobody that sounds anything near like him no and he's just and he's also like he's a vegetarian which i'm mm -hmm. all about and it's just there's so many things about him that i just think are so super cool so i thought well this is my way this is sort of my shortcut that i can work tom morello <laughs> into a story um, yeah. But also make it very feminist, which I think that he would mm. appreciate because I know yeah. he, he does support feminist causes. So yeah, and it, and it's gotta it again without wanting to spoil too much. You know, you've got you've got this awful setup with these horrible frat boys, and it does have yeah. I, again, just the the conclusion <laughs> is very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> Another one I, I want to highlight real quick, just because it, you talk about a subject that I talked about on my other podcast on The Weirdest Thing, uh, Mountain of the Dead, which is like your kind of take of the Dyatlov Pass. Yes. And it's so funny because I can remember when, like listening to your episode about that, because that's one of these creepy, creepy true stories that I've always been fascinated mm -hmm. with to the point where I I read everything I could read about it. And so I was so excited when you did when you did an episode. And so I really just wanted to write a story where I tried to imagine what the was. reason, right? The what happened. And and we should say for people who don't who aren't aware of it, I mean you can look it up. But it's just, it's a very strange thing that happened in the Soviet Union. And now I'm thinking of the day, I want to say it was the 1960s. Yeah, 60s or 70s. Yeah. Yeah. It was basically like a, a champion ski team it was like hiking through this area of the Caucasus Mountains called Dyatlov Pass. And basically, we're all found dead in a very strange circumstance. That is never quite, and I, I talk on the episode, I talk about some of the possible like explanations, but it's one of those stories where it's like, well, that kind of makes sense, but like, there's no one explanation that really fully feels like it totally explains what happened. 
Yeah, I mean, some of them are bonkers. Some of the, some of the explanations are kind of bonkers. Oh, yeah. but some of them are, yeah, I absolutely agree that make it makes sense. But then there are these outliers, like some of the bodies were found, like for instance, the fact the fact that a couple of them were found without wearing shoes, like they had mm -hmm. run from the tent in the snow, right in mm -hmm. the middle of the night, in a what seemed to be like a blizzard or an avalanche or something, and did not even bother to put on their shoes. And so, mm -hmm. details like that are what I tried to explain mm -hmm. or how the tent was found cut a certain way from the inside. Yeah, you kind of almost go through it almost like beat for beat. Like Yeah, I was trying. I was trying. It's um uh but that's I think even a, with the even with the people in the tree, I think. I'm trying to remember yeah, my because they do think that they may have that some of them may have climbed, maybe to try to get away from something or to see where they were or mm. yeah, it's such a creepy, creepy piece of history that is just it just hasn't been explained there is a website i do want to warn people though because when i was doing the the research there is a website that someone has accrued all of the photographs the photographs of the dead bodies and they're not censored yeah i think i saw that when i was doing the research too it's yeah grisly extremely grisly i thought yeah. oh my gosh these aren't being like in any not censored at all. <laughs> like, yeah and so it's it's just disturbing on so many different levels so yeah i mean i guess that's well that'll be my that's my explanation mine i think is a little it's even more bonkers than some of the other yeah ones well yours uh, but again you know it's another one that i think you end that one on enough of a, an ambiguous note where it's like i think i know and we could talk off, we could talk offline. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's a sort of essentially kind of two, there's like one sort of rational explanation and then one very not rational explanation. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's kind of up to you, which you <laughs> prefer. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah. yeah, that's a fun one. I got to say Trip Trap. Uh, oh. I love the structure of that, just with the, uh, the I guess you'd say like Yelp reviews or Expedia yep. reviews or whatever. Yeah. So that's, and that was inspired by, I had gone on vacation and down to this place in Florida, which is perfectly fine. And don't get me wrong, like Florida's gorgeous. This was in Clearwater. Everything about it was beautiful. It was nice and warm up here in the Northeast. It was cold. It was, you know, dreary. It was yeah. just so nice to be down there. But there are some sketchy things sort of going on at the hotel that you can mm -hmm. sort of feel there were some sketchy things going on. And so that made me think after and afterwards is when I read the Yelp reviews of this place and they were horrific. Like people had, had posted photographs <laughs> of like going into their you know new room and there was like dirty underwear, like mm -hmm. draped over the shower and and like hair everywhere. So I wanted to imagine like what would be something that maybe the staff knew about and had been just a problem all along, but no one's really getting what's going on. And mm -hmm. so they're posting these reviews and they all have kind of a piece of what is going on in, in the hotel. And I had a lot of fun with that it one because it's sort of tongue in cheek and it's got some good, it's got some real fun gross out. Um, I mean, you have uh, you have an image, I'm just going to say, of a guy scratching his back that yeah. I have not been able to shake since <laughs> I read it. And that's one of the earlier ones I read. So I probably read that over a month ago. And I still, I'll think about that. And blah, like yeah. <laughs> the, It's funny because you mentioned like the Florida thing. And obviously it's set in Florida. But I, my association with that story actually was kind of more your neck of the woods. Because okay. back when I was... 
uh, going to Boston University, we were over the summer. It was like towards the end of the summer. I believe, what's the, in Rhode Island, it's it's like the kind of beachy community. Oh, Musquamacate? Um, maybe or newport's newport's very affluent there are kind of there's musquamacate which is a beach there's um gosh i don't even i don't know rhode island's i don't know i, I mean look at me scotty I, i'm like i practically glow in the dark i'm staying away from beaches <laughs> i think i think it was newport or around newport but we went down and it was like towards the end of the season where like the fancy people had kind of moved on for the summer mm-hmm. and it was like oh we got here when like things are getting a little a little rough around the edges. Like you could just tell this was like, okay, like the riffraff is kind of moving in for the last couple of weeks. And like, yeah. I remember we watched a woman and her younger lover get very uh, frisky with each other oh. <laughs> against the life, against the lifeguard stand. Hey, good for her. As like a crowd essentially <laughs> surrounded them and pointed. Oh yeah, it was that kind of... <laughs> And so, like, it made me think, and I've had this experience in, in around L.A., too, where it's, like, this outward facade of luxury, and then it just scratched the surface a little bit, and yeah. it's, like, just a little tacky, a little sleazy. <laughs> and, like, I felt like Trip Trap in a very fun way kind of just captured that, where it's, like, you know, things aren't necessarily what the, like, the, the online pictures are going to look like. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah, the resort that it's based on is i mean it is it's it's a good i would go there again i would mm-hmm. if only because it was right on the beach there what really was like the the bar that they end up going to and dancing mm-hmm. at was within walking distance you know and it's just beautiful weather down there when it's when it's awful up here so it yeah. but yeah there was definitely there's something going on there i'm not quite sure <laughs> what it was <laughs> but um i'm hoping it's not what was going on in my story that would yeah. be that, that would be really disturbing. I think. So. <laughs> that was the one story. I well, I, Mountain of the Dead has a little bit of like gross out stuff yeah. towards the end, but really like the one that actually like kind of tripped my like revulsion meter was <laughs> Trip Trap. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll leave that to the to the listeners to. Yeah, you're welcome. I have no I was I I enjoyed that one. That was one of my favorites. It was a lot of fun. Less fun, but more powerful. And it's another one that I read early on that has really stuck with me. And I would say it's I'm not even sure I would characterize it as a horror story. Okay. Um, the white trash. Yeah. yeah. That's uh. Yeah. So it's yeah. That's I mean yeah. I. So one of the things. So getting back to I'm gonna kind of work Jen Lee back into this. So Jen Lee and I met in New York City over the summer and we went we went to dinner and everything and and she's just fantastic. She was in the middle of recording White Trash and Recycled Nightmares and sometimes I was just having a conversation with someone about this. I think as writers we don't necessarily realize the motifs that show up in our work mm-hmm. until someone says like, "Hey, you write about XYZ an awful lot. Like what is going on? Mm-hmm. Like let's take out my, you know, psychoanalytic lens and kind of let's have some therapy here." Mm-hmm. And she she was so on the money about certain things, you know, she said, you know, has this ever happened or are you struggling with this? And one of the motifs I think that pop up in my work and a popped up forever since I started writing fiction is betrayal trauma. And I feel Mm -hmm. like white trash is the epitome of that and sort of what they do 
to that girl. And it's, I ended up writing it. I, I remember specifically when I wrote it, I wrote it after finishing Joyce Carol Oates's The Corn Maiden, mm. which is that story of these three girls that, that abduct this poor, innocent kid, mm-hmm. you know, keep them, keep her hostage. And it's this whole, and the parents and how the parents are, are, you know, wondering where she is and, and, and this whole sort of everything about it, about that story stuck with me so much so that I, I, as soon as I, as soon as I finished it, I started just making notes on white trash. And as a matter of fact, I specifically name the character, the character that's targeted Jude for a reason, Mm -hmm. because in the corn maiden, she's the aggressor. And then I make her the victim in this one. And then I also, the other two aggressors that are in that story, I'm going to be perfectly honest, they are two kids, two girls that when I was young, one time when I was in elementary school and another in when I was in junior high, who I watched get bullied and did nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I have no excuse for that. It was a horrible thing that I did not not speaking up for them, but their names were Elaine and Carrie. Mm. Spelled spelled Carrie spelled differently, but I should have done something. It's mm-hmm. something that I, you know, it's one of those things you look back and think, well, and that's you done something. I mean, that's that's something I feel like we can all relate to, and that's the thing about that story in particular, White Trash, is that like we've all, I feel like we've all been teenagers, and we've all been in a group of kids where someone becomes the target. And you're just mm-hmm. kind of glad it's not you. Right. And of course, you take it to a much darker place. But we've all been to some version. It's interesting that you're talking about Joyce Carol Oates because it actually kind of brought to mind. I've been thinking about another Joyce Carol Oates story recently, the um, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. her, like, I think one of the scariest stories ever written. Absolutely. And it was um, inspired by the serial killer in Tucson, Arizona. They called him the Pied Piper of Tucson. Yeah also inspired jack ketchum with his novel the lost um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you know it's about this or the real story was he was this like this was in the 60s and he was this i think just out of high school dude who like was like essentially seducing all these young girls and had this kind of like posse of people following him around and then he just started killing them you know and like there's something about your story that brought that to mind for me and that it's the you know the the someone doing something evil in plain sight of his friends right and then the friends kind of because of for whatever reason fear or yeah mob mentality yeah Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of things going on in there I think that I've I think out of all of the stories that I've ever written in my life, there are more things that I've kind of scooped out of my own experience to put in that story. I mean, what what sort of happens to her is is a, is a culmination of two things that I know about mm-hmm. that it happened when I was in high school. And then the the just the the name of it, which I know. So when I was first shopping this collection around, one of the publishing houses that looked at it and considered it said, yeah, we love this. We love, we love the way you write. We can't call it white trash and recycled mm-hmm. nightmares. And I said, well, why? And he goes, well, that's really, it's really triggering. It's a really upsetting term. And I said, mm-hmm. I get kind that. Of why? That's the point. Right. And I get yeah. that. And it's also, I, I got to be honest and I'll, and I'll tell people this. I was in graduate school, you know, and I had 
and I didn't come from money. You know, I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is, you know, it's, it's for the most part, you know, middle class, lower class. It's a, it's sort of, it's a larger city in Massachusetts. And the, my two graduate school roommates both came from a lot of money, a lot of money to the point where one of them, her parents moved her in and gave her a credit card and made a very big deal about saying like, make sure you take yourself to dinner, you know, at least once a month and we'll pay Mm -hmm. your credit card. Meanwhile, I'm, you know, taking out student loans and I'm working, you know, a job. And she was very clear and said to me one day that, that I was white trash. She called Mm -hmm. me white trash and it stuck with me because I think it, it, it stuck with me so much because I was an adult by that point. You know, I was 22. We were all adults. We were all in graduate school. This wasn't a, I'm 12 and we're going to talk about why I have nicer sneakers than you. It was a, I'm going to tell you right now that this is the class you're in and I'm in a different class and you're not going anywhere. And it stuck with me forever to the point where even when I wrote the story, I looked her up and I found the irony is she works as a women's empowerment speaker. Now. No, of course, that's, thought, that's, that, isn't that what always happens? With those right. People? I'm like, what? And, and I get and I understand that presses hesitancy at wanting to use that term. But for me, and it wasn't actually the only time I've been called that. But I think the fact that I was called it as an adult was the problem. And it's a hurtful term. And it's also, you know, I have a character call another character that in the story. But the irony is so clear, because he is obviously a horrible, horrible person. And for him Mm -hmm. to use that term as a way to kind of like bring his victim down a Mm -hmm. a peg or two, I thought maybe revealed a little bit more about his character to say like, he's not just, you know, this monster. He is also, he's very, very aware, very aware of how to hurt people on a lot of different levels. Well, and and that, and again, that kind of takes me back to the whole um, Pied Piper of Tucson. I'm trying to, uh, Charles Smith, that was his name. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just about the act of violence committed against essentially a teenage girl. It's about the manipulation of everyone around him. Right. And by labeling her. And I feel like with this story, by the way, I'm again trying to be a little bit circumspect, but this story, it's more clear from the start what happened. There's not like a big twist reveal, but it's the working your way through everyone's culpability. So you know it's it's a little less i don't know susceptible to being spoiled in that sense but like what it really struck with this character i'm gonna name him it was bill um or billy which by the way kind of sat with me because you know i have my movie dead billy and i was like oh he's like a younger (laughs) version of almost the same guy (laughs) like um, but uh he uh you know not only does he feel the need to to commit this act of violence he has to bring everyone along with him by othering her by being like it doesn't matter because she's like trash you know right and they're all kind of at the same economic level that was sort of the thing yeah. that that i really wanted to show that they're all living in the same you know neighborhood. yeah they weren't all... like rich kids you know no like... they aren't there's there's they're kind of like they're like the kids that i you know grew up with that mm-hmm. i would have never considered white trash but i can see how this roommate of mine that came from all of this money is sort of seeing it through her through her lens and her perspective. And it's also, yeah, I guess I wanted it to be more of a character study and how each one of them 
is a because it is this sort of this this violent act has happened and they're all culpable because none of them they all participated in one way or another and none of them are talking none right. of them are giving and it's this whole sort of i don't know cabal of fear mm-hmm. that that grows and grows and grows that one of them is going to talk and then what will happen if one of them yeah. talks and it's and yeah. it's it's got just the sense of dread that hangs over the entire story from the beginning but you know like i said it's you know i read a story like say mountain of the dead and it's like that's that's a straight up horror story you know yeah. like white trash it reminded me more, it almost was like more like a experience like of like uh, the movie boys don't cry or something like mm-hmm. that where it's mm-hmm. a horror story but it's very real and i feel like these are stories we see in the news all the time i can point to several true crime instances of similar types of things of teenagers kind of turning on each other and like yeah. you know it's uh and like i said it really rattled me because like i also I knew people like that growing up and I, you know, never quite a situation like that, but I've definitely been the person in a group of people, you know, watching someone get bullied and just being like either participating or just kind of hanging in the background, hoping not to have that energy turned on me. I feel like we've all been there at some point. And this is kind of like, just, this is how, this is a good example of how far that can go. But I thought what you, the way you told the story you know, I've I've definitely developed more of a, you know, I've talked about it on here uh, with some of my other guests. I've I'm more of an openness towards like extreme horror than I used to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But white trash to me is a perfect example of like how horrifying something can be when you keep it quiet, when you really leave a lot to the imagination. Because you know the images I'm conjuring up in my head are almost more like I feel like if you would really like reveled in the violence aspect of it it would have just pushed me out of the story you know yeah, yeah. somehow this it just the way it just kind of reeled me in until there was really no escaping it you know well thank, thank you really thank effective you. Yeah. and i'm also very proud of my 1986 research because i, I spent <laughs> yeah. good well, i mean researching the especially the music because i remember talking to it's a good friend of mine that i'll just i'll just give him a shout out so his name is dylan burkevich and he's we've been friends for two decades and mm-hmm. he's my sort of go-to music guy so if i have a question about because he, he also he plays guitar and so i'll ask him like what is what do you call this particular sort of you know piece of music and he'll mm-hmm. he'll tell me but then we talked about 1986 and i said well what do you remember from because that I do remember, you know, friends of mine playing that best of Aerosmith tape to death, to death, you know, over and over and over again. But also, I I think my brother, you know, my brother is a little bit older than me. He was playing that constantly. Yeah. Yeah. The the red and white cover. Red and white cover, right? Um, And then Dawkins, you know, came out. I was a big Dawkins fan at the time. And so, but Dylan's contribution was actually the Yankee Rose because he said, I just (laughs) remember that video. And so I rewatched the video and then I watched just commercials that were coming out at that time. So the Burger King commercial, the advertisement for American Anthem, the, um, you know, Labyrinth and things. And so, and even the, the movies that were coming out, like in specifically in June of 1986. And here's a little side note. So friends of mine and I, we're just, we were, we were bad kids. I, have to, <laughs> I look back. So we used to, at the our, our movie 
that we used to say we were going to see was who framed Roger Rabbit. We would tell mm -hmm. our parents that we're going to see it for like the fifth time, but it became this ongoing joke because we never went to see it. We went, <laughs> we went out drinking. We actually, I remember, you know, what, we're getting into like a bar at, you know, seven, 16, 17, 18 years old, um, <laughs> you know, doing things that were really, I'm so glad I don't have kids because I don't have to lie to them and say like, <laughs> yeah, mommy never did that because I did that. And yeah. And so in the story, it becomes the Fer Ferris Bueller. Mm -hmm. But yeah. And, and so I, yeah, there's so much of me. Well, you have some great details. Like the, with the Ferris Bueller, like they don't have to have seen the movie because everyone at school is quoting it. So they right. all know all the one-liners. I love, because this felt very real to me, is that they're watching the Aerosmith Run DMC video <laughs> on TV while listening to a different Aerosmith song on the tape. Yes. Like that was a great detail <laughs> or the moment where it's like, they're both playing at the same time and it's Steven Tyler battling with himself. I thought that was great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, that story, I mean, that probably of all the stories, you know, like I said, Trip Trap has the image of the guy scratching his back, which I still shudder over, but probably <laughs> the story, the two stories that have really like not left my brain since I've read them are layover and white trash. For different reasons, uh, but they both... One thing about Liver, and again, don't want to say too much about it, but th that taps into a very real phobia of mine, which is like a newly developed phobia that if you've listened to the weirdest thing, you can probably figure out what I'm it's, talking it's about. Not, it's not water? Because I thought <laughs> I, I almost... Have you read... See, there's a story in there about drowning, and I, and I Ooh, haven't read know that, that you are not a fan of water I know that you're not and it's funny because every time I've heard you talk about it I've thought oh gosh I wonder if you've ever read because <laughs> it's the same it's towards the end so you may not have gotten it but I remember yeah. he's just a guy who's like that's it but he's just he's not going to live near water he's not going to go into water like that's, <laughs> it's just the way yep. it is man and yep. so your that's... new what's your new phobia what's the one that's replaced it well again uh in relation to layover it's um i've i created this phobia for myself because i created a fear of flying and i've oh, talked okay. about this on um the weirdest thing yeah. where you know i always like to say you know the greatest tv show of all time is the wire yeah. but at the actual greatest tv show of all time is air crash investigation oh my God. Um, on smithsonian watching that you're watching that? who's watching that for no oh, i binged like, it amusement Oh my God. I've binged it several times. I can't get enough of that show. But the thing is, like, I never had a fear of flying before. Every time I get on an airplane now, like, it makes one little bump or there's one little noise that is like a little bit different. I'm like, we're going down. It's, we're done. <laughs> Say your prayers. <laughs> Yeah. So, so listeners, don't watch that show. You ever want to get on a plane? Good God. No. Yeah. It's it's uh it's rough, and there's like 20 seasons of it, and I've watched I think every episode. I'm also trying to figure out like who is greenlighting that show. Like, no, we've got to have another season of these horrible, horrible mangled, mangled people. Well, it's well. The thing is, it's like you know there'll be like the stories we all know about, like you know, like there'll be occasionally be like you know the Pan Am 103 or whatever bombing or whatever. Yeah. But the ones that stick with me are like someone forgot to put a bolt in the thing. Oh and God, then the thing falls off the plane. There's one where it's like the entire, they just forgot to put the upper bolts on an engine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the most famous plane crashes of all. It's the one in Chicago with the famous picture of it on its side. Because the engine just fell off the fucking plane. 
And like, um, and one of my favorite stories, and even though it's one where everyone survives, is the Gimli Glider in Canada, where they ran out of gas halfway across Canada because they forgot to convey convert leaders into feet or whatever like they forgot to do the metric to imperial conversion (laughs) i have so many plane trips planned this year (laughs) well you're welcome (laughs) so so i used to be i used to be afraid of flying because i'm i'm slightly slightly just slightly claustrophobic Mm. um you can put me in a closet and that's fine but in a place like a train that's going really fast or a plane somewhere where Mm. I can't escape without dying Mm -hmm. actually does bother me. But I, I can remember I was a huge fan of the TV series lost. Mm -hmm. And so in lost, right. You've watched lost, you know, so it breaks in half. And so I can remember choosing plane seats, thinking in my head, Mm-hmm. Do I want to be in part of the tailies or do I want to be part of the front? <laughs> I don't want to be in the middle because those are the people that were sucked out during right. the plane crash. So I <laughs> need to be on one extreme or the other. So for a long time, I was choosing seats in the very back of the plane, which of course means, you know, I don't get off the plane after they land for another hour. So right. I stopped doing that. And now, now I'm like a, like a front person if I can, mm-hmm. I, but I'm still not on the wing because I, I think that image really of the, the plane. So I get it. Yeah. I absolutely get it. And now I'm going to be thinking about like a missing bolt the next time I'm <laughs> on the plane, which is gosh, yeah, it'll be for spooky. Thank you. Thank yep, you. It's like, yep. it's like in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> well, I'll be, yeah, I'll be, uh, I'll be panicking right along with you on the plane for Pierce. You're also, are you flying as well? Yep, You're flying. Yeah. yeah. I drive whenever I can because I don't like to fly, but New Mexico to Florida is a little. Yeah, that's that's a like bit. a that's a that's quite that's a few days. I guess maybe that's a good um, segue. Let's talk about Spooky a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So you and I are going to be at Spooky Empire, which goes mm-hmm. from the I want to say the twenty. It's the last weekend in October, and I so it'll feel be like Friday, it's Saturday, Sunday through the twenty seventh through the twenty ninth. Yeah. And it's huge. So they, it's it's the one of the biggest horror conventions in in the nation. And mm-hmm. this year they have for their guests, they have, I would say, every who's who from horror, like There's horror movies. From a the, ton the of people above the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, Friday the 13th franchise, Elvira. The Lost Boys, just everything you can think of. So if you're into meeting celebrities, I guarantee one of the ones that, that you love is going to be there. But in addition to that, there is a vendor room, there is a tattoo uh, competition, and there are these other two more, I'm going to say they're, they're more, um, I don't want to say academic, but they're it's sort of these other tracks that are going on. And you and I are part of one of them called the creator's track. Mm-hmm. And that is writers, filmmakers, podcasters, um, just the creators in horror. And we're doing just a series of panels back to back to back on every aspect of horror from the podcasting to psychological horror t- mm-hmm. to um, monsters to what draws people to go into careers with horror so that's that's going to be exciting to be, yeah to I'm, and i'm excited because this is my first time actually being invited onto panels of a convention yeah. so. really really yeah. oh you're gonna love it you're gonna be like a you're gonna be a natural at this so. <laughs> you're on quite a few too if i yeah i think I'm on, I'm on like five or six or maybe four yeah, or five yeah. something like that yeah. yeah yeah i know you're moderating one of the ones i'm on that's the I academic am. I'm moderating. yeah 
the horror for homework. So it's it's a new one. We haven't had this particular panel before. It's specifically on using horror in academia, right? Yeah. So what because I know you teach film mm-hmm. at University of Albuquerque, am I right? Uh Santa Fe Community College and I just okay. started at the University of New Mexico. So. Okay, University of Mexico. So yeah. that and we have Zachary Beckler who teaches um, in Florida. Francis Ald, who teaches in Florida. So it's it's um, Kevin, uh, Lucia, Lucia, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing his name and I apologize, mm-hmm. teaches up in New York. It's, it's just going to be, I think, um, really interesting. And it's something that I'm interested in, which is why I volunteered to moderate it about how, because I know I'm always trying to incorporate horror into my curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, I teach AP English at a high school and I have, so I have a lot of wiggle room as far as what I can use for text, right. but obviously it has to, they have to speak to a particular skill that mm-hmm. they have to master. And I'm always interested to, to hear what people are using and how they're using it and, you know, how students are reacting mm-hmm. and, and how it's no longer sort of a genre that we're thinking is not, you know, high class or literary enough right. to be used. I think it, I think it is. I think the kind of things that people are doing now in film, in, in literature, specifically in the sort of the darker realms are, are so brilliant. They're so creative. They're so original. So so I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to be on the you know, one thing. I was thinking about it because I was uh, answering your questionnaire earlier mm-hmm. today. Yeah. And one of your questions was, you know, you're just asking, like, how, how do your students kind of, you know, are they receptive to horror? Mm-hmm. What I found is in teaching film is that everyone wants to make a horror movie. Um, yeah. So they're very, they're very, they're very open to it. The problem is the reason they want to make a horror movie is because they think it'll be easy. Oh. And so it's like, I have to like, be like, no, 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 no. You've got to take this a little more seriously than you're taking it. Because they think it's just like, throw some zombies in there and some fake blood and you got a horror movie. And it's like, Oh, yeah. No, yeah. as a matter of fact, I would guess, and I'm not a film person, but I would guess it's actually more difficult than say a straight romance, like a rom-com or something along those lines. Because even though you're incorporating the same skills with the, everything from the music to the lighting to uh, you know the, the mise-en-scene and everything, you also have to add this additional sort of, I think, very specific lighting, very specific music. Mm-hmm. And as well as the, the cuts have to be a certain, I would assume, like the cadence of, of the cuts and, and the scenes. It's all scenes. about pacing. Exactly. Well, I remember much. one of my short films, one of my favorite short films, uh, it's called Halfway House, that I did. It was probably about 10, about 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. I was working with a cinematographer, a very talented guy, but not the usual cinematographer that I work with. Right. He was not particularly that experienced doing horror. And I remember one scene in particular, I had to keep, I was like, pull the lights out. He kept trying to overlight this one scene. And he was kind of getting, he was like, but you can't see anything. Like, she's just a silhouette. I'm like, yes, exactly. Like, what we don't see is, you know. And it was really fascinating to me, like, because then when he actually saw it, he was like, oh, I get it. You know, but it was like, just his instinct was just to throw, it's like, well, you have to be able to see it. And it's like, that's and that's like maybe a romantic comedy impulse or, you know, action movie impulse or something. It's not a horror impulse, you know. Right. And even though we think of maybe horror as being very in your face, I think it, it works better if you are more subtle and mm-hmm. sort of communicating these this mood through things that maybe aren't as straightforward, things like the lighting. And that's always like, like I said, you know, I, what I love about um, 
back to your book is, you know, I've been reading a lot of more kind of splatterpunky stuff lately. And so it's between you and Daniel going back to more like kind of subtle, quiet horror stuff. It's really just reminding me like this is this is my wheelhouse. Like this is what I love the most. I can I can really appreciate the like you know the gore, the splattery gore stuff. But the stuff that just really like gets to me is always the subtle stuff. It's always the it's always the stuff where the emphasis is on what we don't see, yeah. you know. And so like doing that in film, yeah, it's like trying to convince a bunch of like 19 year old film students to like you know no be like nuanced with your <laughs> zombie right. movie um right. can be a little uh it's an interesting challenge so it'll be fun to yeah. kind of talk about that speaking yeah, of yeah. movies that's maybe a good segue into so as always I asked you to name a movie and you just so <laughs> happen to name one of my favorite movies of all time <laughs> so we have to talk about this <laughs> Yes, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's funny because I can remember when I first saw this movie, I saw it on the television because I was way too young when it came mm -hmm. out in the theaters. And I remember, but I remember being young enough. So it either must have just been on like new to cable or it just went on network TV, but I was still pretty young and really being very freaked out by by the movie and not catching re-watching it you and I both watched rewatched it mm -hmm. this weekend yeah and I caught a lot of things where I'm like I don't ever remember <laughs> this sort of being yeah so the the wife for instance I didn't catch this the well I wouldn't have caught it when I was a li little but his ex-wife plays is the same actress that plays Annie mm -hmm. in the first Halloween yeah it's I, um I think her name is Nancy Loomis She's also in Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah, she, and apparently she's ageless because in Halloween <laughs> 1, she's a, a senior in high school. And then in Halloween 3, she's married to Tom Atkins, who, good for Tom Atkins, but <laughs> the, all of the women that he's hooking up with in that film are, I mean, more, less, I mean, if you cut his age in half, because I, I even went on IMDb because I'm like, mm -hmm. This feels off. Like it doesn't feel like they're this like is a in the eighties where it's like, yeah, it was no one thought it was weird that the sixty year old guy is hooking up with the twenty five year old. Woman, it's but... super weird. It's super. I mean, because he's also he's also hooking up with Jamie Lee Curtis in the fog. Right, hooking up with Jamie Lee Curtis in the fog. That was just a few um, years earlier. So he's yeah, he's. I mean, good. Like I said, good for Tom Atkins. <laughs> but I mean, because he has quite a few women and going on in, the, in, that, in that film, but. And his, in fact, I looked up to see if he was, he's still touring conventions. He's not coming to Spooky, unfortunately, mm. but he would be definitely someone that I would want, yeah. that I would want to see because he's, he's so badass. But yeah, what did, so tell me your, <laughs> what do you like about Halloween? Three? So what I like, so and we, I think everyone probably, probably knows the story behind Halloween 3, but in case no one knows, Halloween 3 is like the, the, the oddball Halloween movie that has nothing to do with Michael Myers. You actually see, that, I think at one point they're watching Halloween on yeah, TV. It's a, it's on, right, there's a commercial for it, I think. Uh, yeah, block. that's right. Yeah. Um, so it's not part of the same universe. And this was because you know, John Carpenter, he never wanted Halloween to be a franchise like what it turned into. His idea was that every Halloween, it would be like an anthology film. Right. So like each movie would be like a different story. But after the first Halloween was such a huge success, they fast-tracked Halloween 2, 
which was of yeah. course. So by the time he got to do what he wanted to do with Halloween three, people were like, "Where's Michael Myers?" And I, I think that that was a. I, I wish that they. I wish they had left Halloween one as is. I wish they'd left it. I think it's a fantastic yeah. movie. The first one and Halloween two. I don't know if you've seen it recently. I it ha- it's sucks. Bad. It's it's awful. terrible. <laughs> it's it's I you know I almost you want to like reach for the screen and screaming and grab Jamie Lee Curtis and say get out just get, yeah. get out of this film yeah. get out of your contract. <laughs> um, I because I, I, I know that the story for Halloween three was supposed to be the second one in the that was going to be Halloween series, two like you're right. saying. And I I think that that would have been brilliant because the only tying thread was going to be that they all happen around uh, Halloween. Halloween. And this one was like what I love about Halloween three is it's it's John Carpenter like going into like his obscure horror influences because the original script was written by and I'm forgetting his name now. I think Nigel Neal, um, who's a British writer who wrote the Quartermass movies, which were a huge influence on John Carpenter, particularly if you've ever seen Prince of Darkness. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so he wanted to do that kind of thing for his what what would have been Halloween two became Halloween three, and then Nigel I guess they ended up rewriting his script and he took his name off of it. Um, he didn't like the changes, but it is very what I like about Halloween three is it's like it's an absolute mess, but it's like <laughs> the most ambitious mess because it's like the story it's trying to do about eight things too many in one story yeah. yes and yeah. none of it really quite meshes and yet it's all like weirdly effective in this like kind of dream logic sort of way i i i have now seen this movie um i i would guess probably 12 times now in my life and i still can't tell you what happened at the very end yeah. <laughs> okay i just rewatched it i'm like what what is going like I, it's it's like if you if because it's like so weird, weird. It it's like weird off. Irish folk horror, sort of <laughs> Lovecraftian cosmic horror, androids, right. like um, Stonehenge, Stepford Wives, Stonehenge, um, evil corporations, and the, like it's and, and body horror. So what goes on mm-hmm. to that? There's that scene. First, so there's a scene of this, you know, this mother, this father, and this boy where they they're coming in, they're touring the factory, and it's mm-hmm. so reminiscent of like a Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory kind of scene where you mm-hmm. like the parents are kind of terrible and the boy's kind of a brat, and you mm-hmm. sort of are already irritated that they're in the movie, and so when this horrible, horrible thing happens to them, it you don't sort of feel bad, but you definitely are disgusted. I think it's one of the more disturbing scenes in all of horror where that scene what would you call it it's the the reveal of what the masks right going on with the masks we should say like if you haven't seen it it's about essentially an evil toy company that's selling uh halloween masks that are are more than uh meets the eye i guess (laughs) yeah the children like the most broadest stroke kind of description yeah they've all been told to wear them on like a certain time on halloween night and they're all going to watch a television show you know because it's early 80s or whatever so there's Mm. whatever five networks total and they're all going to watch this one television show to be there for whatever this event is and you find out what it's going to be And and I think it's playing on every one of the networks because at the end where he's trying to get it to he's trying to get everyone not to play the TV show right right it's on all of the networks so it's not even I mean it works so much it works so well for early eighties it would I don't think it would work today obviously because of all the streaming and things but it's 
what the masks are going to do are so revolting and disgusting and creepy and upsetting mm-hmm. and it's it's i mean special that, effects it, it's so funny because i mean the movie overall i'm not sure the movie like it's a it's such a weird thing because i love the movie and it's on like a purely objective basis i can't be like oh this is a great horror movie mm-hmm. except it kind of is a great horror movie because it has these like it's so weird <laughs> and then like that scene in particular is one of the great scenes in horror yeah like of all time yeah. it's it's just it's one of those movies that's like i always i always talk about like my favorite movie of all time is apocalypse now mm-hmm. and apocalypse now is one of those movies that like this is not a movie that should have worked like they're making it up as they went you know they were all kind of going insane in the jungle shooting this crazy thing it should just like completely fall apart and yet it all kind of coheres into this fever dream of a whatever it yeah. is and i feel like halloween 3 is like the horror version of that where it's like this is not a movie that should have worked like the script is kind of a mess yeah. the story is all over the place and yet it all just completely um in some weird non-literal way it just kind of like clicks you know yeah yeah and even that some of the acting is a little hammy um mm-hmm. i mean there are some really neat easter eggs which I I didn't realize until I was sort of looking at IMDb. So Tom Atkins' son is played by Jay. I'm, I'm, I forget the actor's name, but he's Jason Miller's son in real life. The actor, the one who played oh, really? Father Karras in The Exorcist, in the and he's Exorcist, Jason yeah. Patrick's younger brother. And he's oh, also the, that's the right. boy who's yeah, in Near Dark. He's the the boy who's um, in Near Dark as well. I'm not sure. I think he grew up to be like a director or, or some sort of. Oh wow, you're right, and I, I always forget that. Yeah, Jason, the the relationship between Jason Patrick and Jason Jason. Yeah, Miller. so it's just I didn't put that together that that kid was in because I love Near Dark. Yeah, that's what that's I. Oh my goodness, between just every everyone in, in that movie, I mean, Bill Paxton is just he's so he's mm-hmm. like at his Bill Paxton esque, like the superior yeah. Bill Paxton in that that. And aliens, you know, the two I could watch them over and over and over again. Just the Bill Paxton scenes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But yeah, Halloween three. I mean, I think seeing it so young, I, I think had a lot of influence on on me as a as a horror Same. person. I think because it has a real underlying feeling of paranoia and mm-hmm. and this feeling of things are just not as they seem. And and I think that works into my work all the time now i think it's mm-hmm. what i've en- I en- i've always enjoyed in horror and and so that's what i try to do with it i do wish i do wish that john carpenter had been able to finish and just do a, an anthology series i think yeah. it would have been so interesting to see what he had come up with and not sort of shoved everything in the kitchen sink in halloween three um yeah because i do feel like it's it i feel like he was trying to get like everything and, and obviously he didn't direct it but he produced it and i think was like heavily involved in it and it does it's over it's an overstuffed movie but i kind of appreciate that like i'm always a fan of like you know, whether it's a movie or a book or any kind of work of art that's just like, I'm going to take a big wild swing at something. We don't know if it'll work, but we're going to go for it. And I feel like Halloween 3 is like one of those movies that just kind of goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's. I mean, I, I'm trying to think if there's a popular horror movie from the 80s that's weirder than that. Phantasm. 
because I, I a lot of it uh, yeah that's a good call. only because it, it just the 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 workers that are in that are in the factory they bleed that weird kind of yellow goo and it just it reminded yeah. me so much in the fact that they're sort of forming these these you know android people it reminded me so much of them creating the, the people in phantasm and kind of all the sorts mm-hmm. of weirdness going on and phantasm yeah. no that's a good call phantasm's a genuinely strange it film. is it is i haven't yeah. seen that in a long time i have to watch that again yeah and what was uh, i do find one thing i did catch re-watching halloween 3 this weekend is the fact that they make the they they make the factory irish and so they've mm-hmm. even though they're in america and and then so the guy that runs the hotel in the same in the same town has mm-hmm. this very thick brogue and he has everything yeah. sort of decorated Irish. But the the owner is not Irish. He has a very clear British accent, if anything. He's supposed to be Irish, I think, but then they just didn't bother to do that. Like he, he not he didn't even try. Like it's not even an yeah. attempt. No one has a British has an Irish accent except for the hotel owner who has really no affiliation yeah. with the factory whatsoever. Right. I don't know if it, that's supposed to explain why it's called Silver Shamrock Masks. I guess if you is it I don't know if it was a Well, cuz it's cuz the whole thing is it's like it's an ancient it's this toy company corporation but it's supposed to be this ancient pagan ritual and right. the the kids wearing the masks are going to be sacrifices. Right. That's because they all, all the masks have a piece of Stonehenge in them, which is like. But why Irish? Really I, I just, I, it's still, I, I don't. Yeah, because I guess it's Celtic. It's supposed to be like ancient Celtic paganism or something. Yeah. But it's never, you're right. It's never. They never finished that. Clear. Like they start it and they're no. like, nah, no, we're just, we're going to leave this here. <laughs> like we'll just right. we'll get back to it. At yeah, some no, point. We'll, we'll get to the androids <laughs> now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many just weird weird things going on in that just everything just there's every scene there's just something off mm. but in a fun way you know in a fun way yeah and some of it's genuinely creepy i mean like the, i mean the scene we were talking about with the little boy that's genuinely creepy yeah. there's also the woman in the hotel the misfire um, yeah the misfire yeah. is like there's there's some stuff that's like as goofy a movie as it is, it's effective. And I'm I'm with you. I saw it when I was pretty young. And it's funny watching these movies now where you're like, you realize as an adult how little they make, they kind of don't hold together logically. Yeah. But as a kid, it all just works. Yeah. Like you don't question anything. And that jingle, like everyone knows the jingle. Uh, it's just one of these, it's yeah. the earworm that just, you get it when you're a kid watching the <laughs> film for the first time and it just never goes away. It's a scar. Yeah. It's a scar forever. So definitely. <laughs> I do feel like like with horror fans, like you know the true like people who truly love the genre, if they know and love Halloween three. <laughs> 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 because like if you're just like sort of like a casual fan, you're gonna like skip that. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. But if you're like the real thing, you're gonna be like, no, that's the real. <laughs> yeah. It is. It is and it is my yeah. favorite of of all of the Halloweens. Although I did like the first yeah. one. And there's so many things to say about the first one too, but it's it. I mean, I would say Halloween three is much closer to my sensibility because it's Halloween. You know, Halloween's great, but it's a straight up. It's, it's a, a slasher, slasher film. It's a slasher film. And you know, I can appreciate that for what it is, but Halloween three is just so bonkers right. that like it's just you can't compare it to anything yeah. else. Yeah. 
sure. It's got to we, we when you were on before and we were talking about um the Twilight Zone movie, yeah. we were talking about Joe Dante as a director. Yeah. I would say Halloween Suite's got kind of a Joe Dante feel it to does it. Even have, I don't, he yeah. wasn't the director. Absolutely. It's very Joe Dante-esque. Like it's very, there's something about, with his, with Dante's films, there's something about, because we were talking about how he's a, he's an artist really um, when it comes <laughs> down to it. He's, he's, he draws and he's just a fantastic artist. And so, so much of his films have that sensibility to them where they can, they all, even though they are live action, they, they have kind of a, fantastic kind of uh illustrative like it's like something's been been hand drawn feel to them and halloween three is very much like that there's something i I don't want to say cartoonish because it made that that's sort of a derogatory way of saying it but it's cartoonish in a good way in a good way but cartoonish in the way where i think it does in a way that like halloween you know the michael myers halloween doesn't really work this way there's something about halloween 3 that feels like it's meant for kids right except it's inappropriate for kids so then you get the sense that like you know it's a movie about adults hurting kids with the masks but then in a way the movie is also like adults hurting kids because it's like you know it's i think my memory is it was kind of marketed towards like younger audiences than the first one was i saw it pretty young and like there's like it's one of those movies that texas chainsaw massacre like things i saw too young that were like a little bit traumatized right yeah so it's like or even like joe dante's some of joe dante's stuff that's just that thing i love about the 80s where it's just like we weren't cons- we were like ah, oh, the kids were I know. Like- the generation x <laughs> like- that's i mean say what they will you know people can say what they will about generation x but i i gotta tell you i i think that we're resilient generation mm-hmm. because we were sort of like given like oh you know what come in it's whenever it's dark just come home wherever you are we don't you know, right. take your bike <laughs> go riding wherever you're riding and, yeah and it's like, like here's hbo like <laughs> watch whatever you knock yourself watch. out right and it's just yeah and it's like that weird gray area between like a movie like gremlins it's like this is clearly a kid's movie and then it's got that scene in the middle where Phoebe Cates is talking about her dad being stuck in the chimney. Yeah, yeah. But like, I don't know a kid in the 80s who wasn't completely, had nightmares for weeks <laughs> because of that. Right. And I feel like Halloween 3 just, like, you don't get movies like that. Anymore. Like, we protect our kids so much now. Yeah. That they don't have that experience that I feel like we were kind of the last generation to have that experience of like, um, yeah, the, the adults aren't always like taking care of us. So we got to kind of take <laughs> yeah. care of ourselves. <laughs> right. That's right. We're survivors. Yeah. We're survivors. <laughs> well, on that note, so remind us again, uh, White Trash and Recycled Nightmares, it comes out, you said the, the 10th? 10th. So this coming Tuesday, right? Because this is coming out on Friday and it'll be mm-hmm. the following. Yeah, the following Tuesday. So, yay. yeah. And I will say like, again i just i can't endorse it enough it, I'm, I'm i'm slow i'm like savoring it like caviar i'm trying to approach it <laughs> Thank you. um but i have every single story in here that i've read is just excellent it's one of the best collections i've read in a while Thank you. so definitely everyone go pick it up and uh yeah thanks rebecca for coming on i'm definitely gonna what do you what do you got coming up next what are you working on oh so now? well speaking of splatter it's funny so i've i've uh i've been kind of sort of trying experimenting a little bit with a little more extreme um in my writing and so i have a piece coming out that's still more psychological but it has some body horror in it for sure it comes out in candace nola's next anthology at the end of november uh the title of the anthology is dark disaster 
And the concept of dark again? disasters and all of us okay. had to take a weather emergency of some sort, mm. right? So tornadoes, fires, you know, hurricane. And so mine is an ice storm in Boston. And nice. I'm really proud of it. The name of the story is Wolf Like Me. And then I have a piece coming out in Sinister Smiles, Evil Little Fucks. Apology. I'm not sure how they're going to get that on Facebook. Um, already my white trash is being kind of hidden in, in places like people are getting their comments in. Shadow band or whatever. I yeah, I can't imagine this, but it's about a, uh, uh, so we had to choose children just being as evil as possible. And so I mm-hmm. have a, a teenage girl doing some extremely disturbing things I'm very proud of. Nice. And then I have an extreme, extreme horror piece coming out in texas author cons next anthology comes out in july um titled head blown two is their anthology and mine is about a mortician who becomes a little amorous with one of his Mm. uh patients and then gets (laughs) physically stuck and so has to try to get his body out of so it's like (laughs) It's like that uh, James Franco movie, but with a corpse. Exactly. Of a that's candy. that's exactly how I pitched it. <laughs> that's that's it. That that is the tagline wow. right there. It's James Franco, I... <laughs> except without. It's not an arm. well that i'm definitely going to need to be reading that one that sounds fascinating (laughs) so so thank you so much for having me on scott yeah well i'm definitely going to have you on again this will not be the last time so i'm here with heather yo and uh heather is part so you are like officially part of blackout theater correct uh no no i'm not more i was for a long time and then left in like 2017 i think oh okay okay um but uh, blackout is the group that or at least historically does quarantine uh quarantine started with blackout in mm. 2013 and then uh when me and my co-producer shannon left the company uh we took quarantine with us okay so go ahead and just kind of i mean i think pretty much everyone in albuquerque knows what quarantine is but go ahead and just kind of give us the rundown of what it is and kind of how it started yeah totally so uh quarantine productions we do large-scale immersive horror shows every october ish Mm -hmm. and so we've kind of changed uh we started with blackout in 2013 and we did sort of like a an immersive uh, uh, zombie apocalypse story. Right. Abandoned where or in an old warehouse. And then we moved to an outdoor space and we did some stuff in some cornfields for a while. And we moved to the state fairgrounds and did like a, like a girl's school opens on a hell mouth kind of story. <laughs> I think I saw that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then we did an alien one and then uh, quarantine left and started our own thing. And since then we've done, uh, we did like a gothic horror vampire thing. Mm. Last year we did a slasher prom. <laughs> nice. This year's, uh, all brand new again. Yeah. I remember I, I, I went to the, at least one of the ones out of the corn maze. Yeah. Um, which is out kind of on the way to Moriarty, um, if I remember. Yeah, ours was down like sort of in the North Valley. Like, okay. uh, yeah, that one there. Okay. Yeah. We think about those corn maze years as like 
are like the same way like people talk about their war stories are (laughs) (laughs) what was so what was the how did the idea for quarantine come about because you know i mean on the simplest level you could describe it as like a haunted house quote unquote yeah but it's much more immersive than that so what what was what was kind of the idea behind that i think like you know as as theater people we're always kind of looking for like what are the hooks mm-hmm. that we can give to get people to come to live performance you know right. i think especially with like you know the under 40 crowd of which i'm like barely a part of <laughs> uh like i think there's a sense a lot of times that like theater is like not for us right, right? And so uh, we were really focused on the idea of like, how could you make something that like more people felt was accessible? Mm-hmm. And so we sort of like took the kind of haunted house model, uh, which I think has like a buy-in that people are used to and mm-hmm. people go to a haunted house and make an event of it. And then we sort of infused it with our, our theater and film sensibilities of mm-hmm. like, we're gonna tell a story, there are gonna be actors. And then mm-hmm. the audience sort of gets to be a part of it. So it's like you're in the horror movie come to life. Well, I mean, that's the thing about, and I, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything similar anywhere else around the country, but that's the thing that has always stood out to me about quarantine is that it really is. I mean, it's narrative. It really is a story. Like you go and it's, it's got the, a beginning, middle and end. It takes you all the way through. It's got characters. It's not just walking around a corner and a thing jumps out at you. You know, right. you have that. <laughs> Like, but I then, love a little jump scare, but yeah, right. it's like it's more interesting and elevated when it's like the guy who gets disemboweled is like the guy who's been your best friend for 20 minutes as mm-hmm. you've gone through this experience together. And I think that's like more impactful and sort of like scarier in a different kind of way, you know? Mm-hmm. Are you guys all horror fans? Like on your own, like outside of doing quarantine? <laughs> It's pretty wild. So it's like uh, me and my my buddy Shannon, who's my producing partner. He's like a total horror aficionado. Mm-hmm. He's like his his like like Netflix algorithm like it's messed up. It's just like the <laughs> narc- imagine. And I am scared of everything. <laughs> so like I don't think I was really like I always really liked like suspense stuff, and I really like sci-fi. Mm-hmm. But the horror was something sort of I came to more like from doing the show and now mm-hmm. I'm really interested in horror like as a narrative construct you know what mm-hmm. I mean it wasn't necessarily like the genre that I gravitated toward mm-hmm. and you started with the zombie thing but you guys have really kind of moved so is there it seemed if now tell me if I'm wrong about this it seemed like the first few years it was kind of like you you were building off of an original story and then at a certain point you've moved on and each subsequent year is kind of almost its own story in like uh an american horror story kind of way yeah exactly i think like mm-hmm. the first couple of years we were doing this sort of zombie apocalypse narrative and mm-hmm. then sort of felt like we went as far as we could with that and then so this year it's the 10th year and so we're doing i don't want to give we're trying to like we're also seeing like how little information mm-hmm. can the audience with this year but this year we've been thinking a lot about how uh you know ai seems bad Mm-hmm. and scary and also um billionaires mm, interesting <laughs> <laughs> well it's been interesting watching because you know just going on social media and seeing some of your promotional stuff i definitely have had the sense of like i don't know what i don't know exactly what this is but it's all super creepy and like it seems like you guys are really playing with ideas around like the uncanny like things being just a little bit off which yeah, definitely goes in with the ai thing 
humor. Yeah, totally. I think that was like sort of an interesting entry point for us this year of like, what if, you know, your world, mm-hmm. but not quite like, and something's amiss. And mm-hmm. so just like different ways that you can like scare and entice people, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, you always have to be that pop scare. Things can like grow and unsettle and then see what happens from there. And how has it been to like try and promote the show with this kind of concept of you're trying to not reveal very much? I mean, I feel like you guys, you know, you're 10 years in and you've really kind of earned the credibility to do this, but it also seems like it'd be a real challenge. Yeah, you know, it's, I don't know that we'll find it was like the most uh, (laughs) business decision of all time. (laughs) But I think like what what keeps it interesting for us is that we're always like trying something new and Mm -hmm. like a it from a different perspective so we're doing some stuff like formally this year that's a little different there's lots more like escape room and puzzle elements to the story mm, interesting but yeah i think it's also fun to like sort of like people know us now enough to know that when you come to quarantine you're gonna see something spooky mm. and it's sort of unlike anything you've ever seen and so it's fun to kind of be like you don't know what to expect like mm-hmm. you get there and it's just gonna start and you don't have time to kind of plan or like presuppose what's going to happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting that we're talking about this now because my last episode, I had um, a friend of mine on and we were talking about the movie Hell House LLC, which is a found footage horror movie mm-hmm. built around a haunted house that goes horribly awry. <laughs> yeah, nice. That's like an idea we've had for a long time. Of like, what mm-hmm. if you did, like just like a straight up like cheese haunted house, but then like things start to go wrong. Definitely check out Hell House LLC. Uh, oh, ignore, ignore the sequels. The sequels are terrible. Okay, um, but the first one is actually really kind of interesting. And it is. It plays with that borderline between like the cheesy, like I've seen this in every single haunted house yeah, since the beginning of time. And then something new is introduced and people don't know where that line is. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What I've always liked about quarantine whenever I've gone to see it is that you guys really kind of stay away from a lot of traditional horror or uh, traditional haunted house elements. Like how intentional is it like when you're designing the show every year to try to avoid kind of the more standard tropes with like a haunted house experience? I think it's very intentional. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we we want to like push up against like, like we're in this October slot and we love scary stuff. And so that's mm-hmm. a- to us but I think we're really thinking of like what is what is the story that we can tell and that's what's exciting as Mm -hmm. artists and so to like approach it really as like this is this is a live action like this is a movie that the audience is experiencing Mm -hmm. time or it's like a show that happens 360 degrees around you I Mm -hmm. think that's where our our mindset is mostly situated and how what's the creative process kind of look like when you're each year when you're like okay what are we doing this year like how does that start you know with the whole blank page kind of idea yeah so usually like me and shannon start to kick around like usually a metaphor or like style that we want to kind of play with and so like uh this year we were like you know have been increasingly concerned about about ai and what does Mm -hmm. it mean in a world where computers could replace us or what can they replace and so we start with that and we try to come up with like a one or two sentence kind of like pitch of like here are some non-negotiables that we think the story might be involved get with a writing team of like six people usually at the end of july we write for all of august we rehearse Mm -hmm. september and the show opens in october 
Okay. And how does that, I mean, how does that writing process go? Is it like kind of built around a lot of improv or is it much more kind of traditional, almost screenwriting? It's like pretty, it's the, like the loosest writing assignment you could ever imagine. Like mostly Mm -hmm. usually what we start with is we either like, we bring in a bunch of movies or creepy stuff to watch. We like, and then we spend probably like two weeks just like writing terrible ideas on a whiteboard. Mm -hmm. And, and then giving ourselves like small writing homeworks. And then we sort of start to see like, what are we coalescing around? What have we heard a bunch of times? What's on our dream list of things to do? And so, yeah. And so this year there was a lot of like vibes around like, we really want to investigate like employee wellness programs. Mm. And so that sort of be- became like the overall structure of the show. And then we'll be like, oh, well, I really wanted to always see a bathtub full of blood. So mm-hmm. how can we get that bathtub full of blood in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like connecting these disparate dots and trying to find like a superstructure. Exactly. In and that sense, like, it almost sounds like a TV writer's room. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then we get to like rehearsal and we try to get the actors just sort of like a show Bible, you know, mm-hmm. so script for sure, but everything's real loosey-goosey and improv and we always like find as we work like, oh, we thought that that uh, spike wall could like crush a kid like Indiana Jones. That is not possible to do. <laughs> so what can we do instead? Yeah. How, um, I know you have a lot of like returning actors. Like, how do you think about the balance between getting like kind of quarantined veterans versus, it seems like every year you have at least two or three new faces. Like, how do you approach that? And and how yeah. do you approach the, the casting process? Is it auditions or do you kind of go to people you know? Like Usually we start with like the homies that we know who like, it is interesting. The, the quarantine performance experience is like pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Like the hardest musical or like the longest marathon you ever ran. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's like, it's so when people have like successfully done it, <laughs> And, and they're like bought into the process. We like know that like they can handle kind of like the stamina because mm-hmm. often it really is like a, a stamina game in some ways. Mm-hmm. So we've been lucky to kind of indoctrinate a recurring group into our, our cult of madness. <laughs> here we actually had enough people that we were able to really write the story to the actors that we knew could be a part of it, which was like nice. super fun. And so usually we end up doing auditions. This year we didn't have to. Oh, so it's just like, whole group of, of veterans or or people that like we've worked with in the community in different ways doing improv or on film shoots and stuff like that oh cool so i know you don't want to tell us too much about what the story is but give us just the details of like when and where how do we get tickets all the good stuff yeah totally so i'll give you this little tease that it's like uh the audience is welcomed uh to the wellness uh division of a big <laughs> Operation uh, Avum Industries. Okay. And you've been invited to join a new wellness initiative, and <laughs> nothing could go wrong. <laughs> so that's sort of the vibe. And the show opens October 13th and runs through Halloween, Thursdays, okay. and then Halloween. And uh, folks can get tickets at quarantineabq.com. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm definitely going to try and make it this year. Awesome. Um, Well, thanks for having me, dude. It was so cool to talk to you. All right. Well, there you have it. Another one in the can. So thank you very much to Rebecca Rowland and Heather Yeo for coming on the show. And uh, be sure to give us a review. Give us a a five-star rating. Uh, Let me know what you think of the show. 
Um, I'd really like to hear from you guys. And I will definitely be back with you again in a couple weeks.